Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm, I'm going to imagine this like picking a lock and there's different tumblers that need to be moved or lined up. I'll say one of the micro insights that has been accumulating is the difference between faith in Christ and faith of Christ. The difference between like an objective agreement about different attributes or the faith of Christ, which is part of moving into this death acceptance. Death acceptance is also entering the life of Christ. It's also being uh, living in the, the faith of Christ, not something that we generate ourselves. You're, yeah. you're answering Matt's question, and that is, yes, it's by faith. Whose faith? Well, the faith of Christ, and we are co-participants in that faith. So it's not a faith that we generate, initiate, inaugurate. We participate. It's already an accomplished fact in Christ. And so it doesn't depend upon me. You know, this is Luther's problem. I think he pictures faith as this strong belief in his head. But of course, faith is the life course of Christ in taking up the cross. You can't leave any part of it out. The whole thing is the faith of Christ. And we then, that's the picture by the time we get to Romans 6, that we participate in you know the righteousness of God that we die with him and we're raised with him. It's interesting, Paul says, don't you know about the meaning of your baptism? In other words, I don't think these Christians have heard Paul's gospel. Part of the, the issue here is there's this false teacher, but I'm not sure, you know, if this false teacher has had any success, he's probably had success because their own conception of the gospel may not be too far removed from that of the false teacher. Paul's gospel is so radical in comparison to moving out of a Jewish conceptual world. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to he's trying for them to reconceptualize reality. If I asked you just on the basis of 118 to 32 to describe what is it that is the human condition? What is the anthropology of 118 to 32? My first thought is no one has a chance. <laughs> so game over. Yeah, it it's, it's a decided thing, at least for these pagan Gentiles, because that's who we're talking about. It's the pagans, right? And of course, if Campbell is right, you know, I would imagine that in this false teacher's conceptuality, he may mean specifically the Christian pagans of Rome, because they're the ones who aren't keeping the law. They're the ones who aren't circumcised. And we all know that if you're a homosexual, you can't be saved. Because Paul says it right here, or does he? I mean, <laughs> what do you what, what do you think the anthropology is? I think it's confused because we have two confusing things. In the first instance, the people have a capacity to arrive at almost a philosophical understanding of God's omniscience, God's power, you know, His omnipotence, His justice. These are pagan people from creation, and they know, you know, what they should do. 
you know, these are quite sophisticated philosophical conclusions that all people everywhere have arrived at. So that's step one. But of course, by the time we pass through, go through the passage, and they've given themselves over to idolatry, the thing that Campbell does here for us in appealing to the wisdom of Solomon, he just shows us that this is a fairly typical Jewish view, or at least not an untypical view of Jews toward the pagans. But by the time we get to the end of it, they are so inundated with desire, with lust for same sex. The list here is sort of interesting. You know, he's got all these terrible things. And you know, they're gossipers too. Um, <laughs> it, it, it must be a list that he's working from. But I don't think Paul would say such thing. So by the end of it, We've lost the philosophical man. He's no longer in sight anywhere. And as Jim said, you blew it. You blew it just by being born in the wrong group of people because that whole class of people have, have blown it. You know, they've been born into idolatrous, sexual, perverse, sinful cultures. And therefore, they have no cap the capacity that he begins with is completely undone by the end of the past. Good Plus, luck, you know, trying to convince, you know, your your average reformed whoever, or just evangelical, and say, well, you understand that whenever Paul is describing homosexuality there, that he's actually doing it in the in the voice of a teacher. It's a rhetorical device, you know, and that that's really not Paul's teaching. You know, he's he's giving voice to the false teaching. It's like we're a million miles from <laughs> from being well, able what, to do that. What I you just what said, yeah, I, in other words, what I just said is totally contradictory. But you understand justification theory says exactly that. In other words, justification theory, based on this passage primarily, says both things. People are completely depraved and completely capable of arriving at a correct understanding of God. Does that make sense? In other words, you can say one or you can say the other, but from this passage, what justification theory wants to do is say both things. Because they need people to be, this false teacher needs people to be culpable. And the way he's going to make them culpable, they have a law that they've broken, and then, but then he gets carried away talking about how depraved they are. How is this a parallel to the justification theory? Because justification theory says both things, that people are capable of understanding who God is from creation. You know, this right. is, we, we sneak in what is called available light. Uh, sometimes we think that's kind of a secondary little thing, but actually we need available, or justification theory needs available light because we need people to be culpable. Because by the end of this passage, these people are incapable of doing anything and how could they be said to be culpable? So we, we've got to say both things, and to say both things is a contradiction. Which you can see how Paul's still, by that logic, still working that out all the way up through 9 through 11, right? That is the, still the same conversation about, well, how could the clay say to the potter, you know? But you used an interesting word there. You said, I, well, I asked you, I said, what's the anthropology? You said confused. But normally... You don't talk like that. 
normally you talk about it in terms of deception, which is a much stronger word, I, w- I would guess, than confused. Um, that's typically the way you've come at this, is that, oh, it's not a whoops, we got confused. It's a, it's a we were both deceived maybe passively and actively or whatever, you know. Is what is being portrayed here a lie or the truth? It's a lie. I think it's a lie. Is that too strong, Brian, that we've just called a portion of Scripture a lie? You kind of got fuzzy. Are you talking about 1, 18 through 32? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And, and I don't think it's too strong. I'm interested in learning how to talk about this. Uh, but I see Without it. getting I, killed, you mean? Well, well, I'm not worried about that so much. <laughs> not today. But I am recognizing that the body of material is 18 through 32 of chapter 1. That's the body of false teaching. And that following it, Paul is making uh, extrapolations based on the internal logic of that and applying the exact same condemnation to all people, the, the ones who have the law. Uh, and are saying it's pitiful to be born into the group that doesn't have the law. I think it's, it's either uh, that, in other words, it's either that this is a lie from hell that Paul is deconstructing, and I know this is going to be hard to sell to people, mm-hmm. or it's the truth from God, and we're going to have to work this into our gospel message. Well, I can see it two ways, that um, that it's the foundation, and yes, <laughs> it's, it's either or in that way. Um, it, in a certain way of approaching soteriology that the question of natural law can be set aside for a minute. We're in a conversation, it goes that deep. But it's almost like, I think you said in your blog today that Paul doesn't start to get to the content of his gospel until chapter 4, uh, and really it's 5 through 8. And all this that's in 1 through 3, you know, you can almost just cut it off. It doesn't apply to just like if he was sharing his gospel with, like he did with the Ephesians, it just doesn't apply. The law, you can see the logic, or at least I can, of Douglas Campbell, this strategy, because you could easily do this. You know, the hardest sections are normally considered 9 through 11, but you can definitely see there where he's playing kind of like a rhetorical, right? Uh, he, he's using the voice of the, of the conditional. Well, what if God, you know... I know we're not there, so I don't want to get us ahead in, in Romans, but but this is like a radical departure. I think that what, if anything else, what Douglas Campbell is doing, I think is a radical departure from the way that most people are taught the, I know it's a departure from the way I was taught Romans, apart from Paul's classes, but even Paul, you, even back then, we were, we weren't going this far. You know, we were, we were trying to say it, but we weren't, we weren't, saying that this is what Paul's doing in, in Romans, you know? But clearly, clearly Paul is saying, is playing the part of, well, shall we sin so that grace may abound? In other words, so if we can see it that clearly in those chapters, why can't we just say that's just the whole re- rhetorical strategy of the whole letter? That there is this yeah. back and forth, you know? There's the, the whole thing is Paul, you know, maybe Zizek didn't take it far enough. It's not that Paul is just... His, you know, rise, raising the question in a hysteric ways in certain sections or with certain passages, but that the whole letter of Romans is one big questioning of the law. 
And more than that, I mean, by the time we get to Romans 7, the passage that he just says that Christ Jesus has delivered us, being made dead to law, that you would be, wherefore, my brethren, you also were made dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you should be joined to another. It's either law or Jesus, even to him who was raised from the dead. Yeah, it's either a law or a covenant relationship, a problem, a marriage, right? It's a marriage. Mar marry the law and you're going to bring forth death, or you're going to be married to Christ and bring forth fruit unto righteousness. Love. Yeah. That's where he's going, the whole uh, of the whole body of text in 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, I think Paul is putting in two sentences, one or two sentences, Romans 7. Yeah, yeah. By the time we get to 3, the Paul is pretty much speaking in his own voice. He's summing up Romans 7, that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may be accountable to God. By the works of the law will no one be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. I think he's clenching the argument. He'll go on and clench it. But now, God's justice has been manifested apart from the law. That's the next verse. Yeah, that's Romans 8. It's Romans 8, but it's there in chapter 3. Has anyone watched Columbo? Columbo. I picture Columbo reading this chapter one he's like at the end of the show oh i just have one question <laughs> right you know, and yeah all, yeah and all the dominoes fall he just clinches the case with just that one little insight at the end you know i think that's it but that by the time we reach the end of chapter three the dominoes have all fallen and now paul i see four as he's he's still dealing with the issue but he's proceeding and you know and, and by the way this reading of campbell's m many people see that you know it is a kind of sting operation this is the way richard hayes describes it so it, it's not that he's the only one that's read it in this light that he sets up these premises and then in chapter two begins the sting operation because that, that's clearly what's taking place. He's working with this logic. The difference is that Campbell has said, yes, but we need to clearly identify that this is not a, a Jewish problem, but this is a false teacher problem, because what tends to happen is we project what Paul is saying about this false teacher onto Judaism in general. I, I think Campbell's right. Everybody sees it's a sting operation, but unfortunately, many people see it as a sting operation committed on Judaism, mm -hmm. as if Judaism is the, the culprit here. The other thing about 118, does Paul have a peculiarly low view of pagans? Does Paul see pagans as sinners worse than he is? And think about it. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. And he's even going to, you know, by the time we get to seven, he's indicted himself in, in the sin. And this is part of Campbell's point. You know, the, the, the speaker behind 118 seems pretty self-righteous that he's saying all these things about these pagans, but not including himself. 
Think of Ephesians, you know, where Paul, he always counts himself in when he's talking about the sinners. But in this section, this person... I thought is, that was one of the strongest points in your blog really? today. I thought that because it reminded me, this is a strange thing. It reminded me for a second, and I hope I'm right about this, that, wait a second, this actually is not the voice of Paul. This doesn't sound like the sweetness of Paul's voice. Does that, I don't know if that, that makes sense, but there's a sweetness to Paul's gospel. There's a, there's a brightness. There's a, there's a warmth to his presentation of the gospel in places like Ephesians 1 and following. There does seem to be a sort of a cold, harsh, dark, almost sort of tone. And what we normally do is we say, yeah, that's because Paul's setting the stage for the gravity of how bad we are. And we are, you know, we are, we're sinners, we're bound by sin and death and all those different things. But I just thought that was a really interesting little almost aside there that, boy, this doesn't sound like Paul's voice in that sense. Like, it sounds like Paul's voice there at the beginning of Romans when he says, according to my gospel in which Christ was raised from the dead, you know, or now, I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, romanticizing. No, I, think that's I, I think that's key because can Paul have said these things? When we know what he said elsewhere, I think Galatians is a very parallel case. But he goes hard in Galatians. But think of what he does in Galatians and who he's going hard against. The teacher. I think it is. We know in Galatians, yeah. it's the Judaizers. Right. And he's, they're Christians, right? Mm -hmm. They're good Christian Judaizers who he says are committing idolatry. To go back to the law at this point, Paul says, is the equivalent of idolatry. Well, just to clinch the point that in this passage, the degradation of these people is in their idolatry. But I am su would suggest that Paul sees one worse than an idolater, one who knows the love of Jesus Christ and would replace that love with the wrath of God and the law of the Old Testament. There is someone who is more despicable. Right. And unfortunately, he's describing a, a huge swath of the, because this is, again, what we do. We've traded the merciful, loving, enemy-loving gospel of Christ with a violent, harsh God who it predestines people to eternal torment and things like this, right? In other words, we exchange the glory of Christ for the law or something that's all too human. I was—I don't want to get us too far off on Zizek, but I, I am thinking about Zizek. You brought out Paul that he that Zizek goes through and says, "Look how Paul is raising the question." In other words, in some ways, it could be that Zizek's almost sort of preceding Douglas Campbell's strategy here right because i thought that zizek's whole point was to say this is what makes paul such a genius or an apostle or whatever is that he's able to question the law or even just the structure of human thought or the structure of anthropology paul is a genius in that sense to where he can identify almost like an artist to see things that most of us can't see you know, and that is to call into question the whole thing. That's what Douglas Campbell seems. To, I don't know if he's theologizing it in the same way, but the, I, I would think that you and Zizek would say 
Yeah, well, this is just what St. Paul does. He takes humanity apart from Christ and describes it as dead, as death-dealing, as deceived, as confused, as, you know, spreading myths and lies about and misunderstandings about God and inventions, idolatrous inventions of God and whatever. And Paul, who himself was a Jew, who was perhaps himself in the place of the teacher, you know, at some point, he himself used to be, maybe that's why he knows it so well or whatever. He knows the law, how it functions. But to me, that's what's so awesome about Paul is that he, he's really calling the whole structure almost of human thought into question. In Jim's words, I had a mini conversion in what you were saying there. <laughs> it was that good. Because that's exactly what Zizek is seeing in Paul. In other words, for Zizek, this is the, the law is reality, and it's an all-encompassing reality. There is no salvation in Christ. There is no alternative. We almost need to see what Zizek sees to understand what Paul is doing, because I think Paul is just taking on reality as everybody knows it. But, of course, he's doing it in a very incremental, point-by-point -point fashion yeah. so that he can deconstruct this thing. And then when he gets to, who will rescue me from this body of death? Mm -hmm. It's an alternative. That's why I loved at the beginning of the class what you said. I, it was, I don't know if you just thought of that or what, but the likening, I know it's just an analogous sort of illustration, but I still like it. That, In other words, that well, what you have... Uh, analogously with the superego is the Jewish law and the, what you have with the ego, the sort of I that, that doesn't have reference to the Jewish law, but nonetheless forms its identity through its own sort of self-discovery, call it, or however you want to say it, you know, and then they come up with all this theology and everything else. But that what you're saying is, is that Paul, it's not that he synthesizes that dialectic in any way. He literally provides an alternative epistemology an alternative ontology he says no this is something new this is what the whole thing you were doing with origin earlier is to say that it's not that origin is platonizing he's literally he's he's taking saint he didn't calls him the 13th apostle for a reason you know in other words he's saying that no actually saint paul is providing an alternative human way to be a way to know a way to have you know to understand god uh, to be a human in community with the church. This is a radical orientation to what it means to be human. In other words, you already said there's only two ways to be human. It's either Jew or Gentile. Paul says, no, that's actually not true. There's a third way. There's the way of Christ. Oh, in his introduction, Campbell so construed the arguments in the Apostles' justification text do not speak of particular circumstances in the early Roman Galatian or Philippian Christian communities, but address in a rather totalizing way the reality and salvation per se. Yeah, that's it. That, 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 and, he, and he says it explicitly elsewhere that there is no Jew or Gentile. In other words, he Paul's gospel seems to be undoing those, Paul said this a million different times, you know, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, white, black, gay, straight. It doesn't matter how we would do identity. What Paul Paul's gospel is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ as a as the reality. So you can participate in that true reality of Christ Jesus or 
the equivalent of a sort of living death for Paul or an identity through difference or all these different ways of the way that Paul's saying it. So it does kind of make it clearer to think back and read those early chapters of Romans or wherever and say, that's true. Like this does not accord with, you know, and maybe someone like Hart says, oh, even St. Paul vacillates, you know, he vacillates between maybe a sort of a universalism or an annihilationism or whatever. But maybe this is uh, Paul's strategy elsewhere as well, in other words, right? Like, no, maybe it's not that he's going back and forth on it. Maybe he is, you know. But what I'm saying is, is that maybe this is just how Paul always does it. He pictures the alternative, which is actually nothing, and Christ. And he's always playing between those two poles. And he does understand the the universality of the, that is his gospel is the universality of Christ that he says it over and over especially in, in, in Colossians like the first chapter and Hart brings this out really well in his translation by the way all things all things over and over all things all things right so it's it's so all encompassing that Christ for Paul really is everywhere present and filling all things and to not participate in that reality is akin to death. And that's it. So you can, and you really can pose a God that's grounded in that sort of unreality. That's a you know a, a total alternative to the revealed. Because that's the other thing you've done in the in the classes before Paul with Romans. Remember the the other class when we did the whole first thing about natural theology, and we did you know can we know God apart from Christ and all that, and you had had a firm sort of you know no. I think you're right about that. That at least for Saint Paul. God is known in Christ. Now, that's not to say that, you know, we've done this, right? That truth can be found and all this other stuff, but that Christ is the highest. And for Paul, that his gospel does seem to be, it's simple, but it's like his gospel is is Christ crucified, risen from the dead, the, the all-encompassing love and mercy of God, and that we can, we, we can build an alternative theology to that, but it's not going to be the God that's revealed in Christ. And I think that what we have in one eighteen thirty two, available light, you can know God apart from Christ. Natural law, you can achieve righteousness and be saved apart from Christ. A view of anthropology, human knowledge is the foundation. Once you begin spinning these things out, and you recognize that by chapter 7, Paul, well, he does it in 5, he does it, you know, that he's continually referencing Genesis 3. Who do you think might be saying that human knowledge is the foundation? Does that sound like Paul? It sounds like the devil. Repeat, repeat that. Who would say human knowing is the foundation? Because that's really what's being taught here. That's actually what's being taught in, in uh, justification theory. That's why we do apologetics in the way that we do it. That's why we think of available light in the way that we think of it. Because we picture human knowledge as adequate to attain to a right understanding of God. Which is so woefully prideful. Like, that's so bad, right? To think that human knowledge can encompass the, the infinite God is such a... But it's hubris. right there in the Bible. Right, that what might be known about God. Yeah, I mean, your point, you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're driving the point home. It's and there in the Bible in Genesis 3 when the serpent says it, and it's there in Romans 8.32 when the false teacher says it. Is that Paul? 
But I, I guess where it gets confusing, and maybe this is just how it always is, is that the lie always sprinkles in some truth. That's what makes it compelling. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 3, right? Because, well, of course we know that in some way God's wrath is being revealed against sin. You know what I mean? That 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 uh, God is a consuming fire. He doesn't consume people. He consumes sin. So in that sense, right, he's a, he's a consuming, call it wrath or whatever, but... I guess that's the insidious nature of a lie, is that there really does, and, and this is in Genesis three, right? That there's a little bit of truth in there too. You know, it makes it a lie. Yeah. yeah, it makes it real hard to understand. You know. Yeah, and that's Brian. I that my statement. This is a gospel from hell. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not some truth in it, and and that's true throughout. You know, it's certainly not Paul's gospel, but unfortunately, we fused. Paul's gospel and this, I think, what Paul in Galatians calls the accursed gospel. In Galatians, we have no problem because we understand, oh, there's false teachers. Paul said, Paul lays out what they're doing. And I think part of the value in Campbell, he's saying, yeah, but we've got the same problem here. It may be exactly the same teacher. But the way that we've usually begun Romans is not to picture it as dealing with a specific problem because we've all kind of accustomed ourselves to the accursed gospel oh i feel like there's something you're holding back like i feel like you're wanting to say something i don't know that it's something specific but that i feel like you're not really firing with both barrels of the shotgun like there's something that's there that you're wanting to say that there's something at stake here that um that you're not quite given voice to yeah i don't know if you're waiting for us to do it i don't know that i'm holding back but i am saying that the gospel is at stake that reality is at stake our understanding of who god is at stake our anthropology is at stake our christianity is at stake i believe in how we understand paul's gospel and how we you know but i i don't think i'm exaggerating that justification theory through Luther and Calvin, has become definitive of the majority of people's Christianity. But can you explain what that means? What, is that, what does that mean right there, what you just said? What is the majority justification theory view that most people have, according to you? Why did Jesus die? Because he needed to meet the requirements of the law, to pay the penalty of the law, to restore God's honor, if you want to think of it, in Anselm. So the law is still the foundation of most people's Christianity. And if that's true, then the reality, there's not really been a conversion because people are still living in the world of the false teacher rather than the world of Paul's gospel. Or we hear he was the perfect sacrifice. In that understanding, human understanding is okay. Philosophy is okay. Human knowing is a f- sufficient ground that we can build upon that. Human culture, you know, you can just go right on through and assign a primacy to human law. In other words, I think these are all structures of the symbolic order that Paul is actually deconstructing. That you can give primacy to each of these things rather than primacy to Christ. And I think that's what Christ the significance of who he is. It's an undoing 
of one form of reality and entry into another. But if we still are basing it on justification theory, and surely, I, as I say this, I, I understand that's an indictment that I suppose God can penetrate and get to us. Obviously, I believe that. But I think that we've thrown up huge, huge obstacles, and they just happen to be the obstacles that Paul would have would have torn down. I think it's awesome. I mean, I think it's such a... I think you're right, in my opinion. I'm biased because I love you, you know what I mean? But I, um, I do think that it has to be how you're describing it because it's never i don't know that it's ever quite been that in the church's history i'm sure in certain quarters or whatever you know people have gotten a hold of like this radical and you can see it and people you know dr king whoever like people who actually apply like the radical beloved community he called it you know or people have done it different ways but it just seems like what you've been describing ever since i've known you that uh most people are just really missing out and it's not to say oh we have the you know or we get it all but you are describing the gravity of how much we really are missing out on the goodness of the gospel because we imagine that in some way humans can do without christ in any in any facet of our existence and have the fullness of being and you've always radically sort of resisted that thought and said no you you can't do an adequate Christian anthropology. It's uh, that's why we call it a Christian anthropology. It has to have Christ at the center. Everything has to have Christ at the at the center in order for it to cohere in a truly Christian theology. I mean, it sounds silly to even say it like that, but I, I think you're right. That, that makes we, a lot we, of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't. We usually don't do it that. We usually don't do it uh, in the way that you're describing. I don't think. I don't either. I mean, I, I think that it's what Jim said. It's what Jim said. It's that most people are content almost to say, yeah, I mean, my understanding of it is, is that Jesus was a sacrifice, you know, that turned the wrath of God away. I mean, that's so contrary to what you've been saying in, just in this class, that it just explodes that whole line of thinking, you know, that God, that Jesus was propitiating of the, like the wrath of God, that that's the center of the gospel, that that's you're calling you're saying it even stronger you're saying that's an accursed form of the gospel because again god is the obstacle in that in that schema it's crazy it's it's that god the father is the obstacle and you're saying also i think that even in the church oftentimes because we think that god the father has a different face than that of christ that god is still like an enemy to humanity's flourishing or happiness or goodness or whatever. He's a threat. He's a threat. You know, and that's, isn't that what these false teachers are saying that God is, and I do, you know, and, but the, here's where it gets difficult. It's like, well, God is a threat to evildoers. Christ is undone. You know, that, that Christ uh, has overthrown their evil schemes and things like that, but not for a bad, not so that they can have a bad end though. It's so that they can have a good end with Christ. I would go out on a limb and say God is no more of an enemy or a threat to evil doers that as they are to themselves. Yeah, Christ is the friend of sinners. What I, what I'm reading from this class and from Paul's, we I'll include myself are captured by by what we are unable to realize. Unable, we don't have the capacity to uh, get a grip on it. 
And I think that Paul would say that we're captured by what we falsely imagine God to be. Because we imagine him differently than Christ, and he's been revealed in Christ. Yeah. Uh, for me, part of the thing that I found convincing about this, and, and, and you almost have to enter in to the conceptuality of this, you know, not just Judaism, but the Judaizers, you, you can almost understand that if you're raised on Torah, that Torah is this blessed thing. I, I was sort of proud in my blog. I did one little thing that, for me, kind of captured what I think this false teacher is doing. That is, if we imagine, okay, 118 to 32, amen, brother. In fact, let's take it further. We know these pagans do not have the benefit of the Mosaic law. That's their problem. This means that idolatry, you know, by the law, we have, we Jews have avoided idolatry, which is clearly the downfall in that picture of paganism. And we have an enlightened thinking that's taken full benefit of the gifts that God has naturally given us and that we flourish because we are the possessors of the law. And we possessors of the law, we're the ones who control our desires. There's no sexual perverts among us. There's no gossips among us. No murderers are to be found. We circumcised ones by the very efficacy of this sign of circumcision receive the benefits of having our desires curtailed. And Campbell, I quoted, you know, he refers to Philo, the immediate benefits of circumcision. In other words, he goes through, oh, that circumcision is e equivalent to the curtailing of human desire. That's really what he's arguing. And I can see the false teacher, and probably many Jews may think this about circumcision. Even today, that is the primary marker of what it means to be a Jew. Even if you're an atheist, if you're a male, the only way that you're a Jew is if you're circumcised. So that, that is the prime sign, and Paul is going to spend a lot of time having to deal in these first chapters with just saying, wait a minute, by your own works righteousness method, you're contradicting your own understanding. This teacher's understanding is convoluted, but I think the teacher is the prototype of a lot of convoluted thinking that Paul then, in taking this apart, is really deconstructing the archetypical human understanding. And it seems like the people that are, the, you know, are friends with God, if you go through Abraham, Moses, you know, the prophets, David, uh, in other words, those seem to be the people who are the true Jews, right? They're, they're, they're friends with God. To me, that, that seems like a legit point because the other way that you would do it is to say, no, again, it's like a marriage, right? It's like, oh, I follow all the rules. I don't cheat on my wife. I, I do this. I do that. It's like, yeah, but do you love her? You know, are you friends with her? It's like, well, what good is the marriage if you keep all the laws and do all the stuff if, you, if you're not like friends with her, you know, if you don't love her? That seems to be the point of, and, and so these false teachers are kind of, they're, it's almost like they're kind of showing the God that they're friends with. 
you know, that the God that they're friends with, and we know religious people like this, are, you know, that their friend is ready to throw you, you know, he's ready to strike you down. He's ready to, you know, and it's a prideful thing, right? In other words, like these other, there's a humility, like if we know anything about God in Christ, it's that he's humble. You know, the humiliation of Christ, Bulgakov does the whole thing with the kenosis, is the, you know, the lowering of God in Christ, that this is how God reveals himself, that he's humble. You don't hear that. And that's what struck, that's what jumped out from your blog to me was the kind of the hubris or like the prideful, um, you don't sense like that humility of love or gentleness or mercy or kindness or whatever from this, from this teacher. There's a cold harshness, you know, um, but that's not the, that doesn't seem like that's the relationship that Abraham had. There's a tenderness, you know, with, between Moses and God. And they, they spoke as friends do, it says, you know, and the psalmist and David and Job and all the great, you know, all the, you know, the, the people that Israel really should be looking up to. These people were friends of God and that's why they did righteousness. That's why they live, you know, the way that they did. Um, but that the Jews that are condemned, are the people who said that they were Jews, but they weren't true Jews. They were they were disobedient in that sense. You know what I mean? They were hateful. Think about what this teacher is saying. These pagans are depraved sinners who deserve to die. They're getting their just desserts in God's destruction of them. Where's the gospel in that? Yeah, but we've all but we've all been taught though that the way that that's what's really going on there is that Paul is saying, yeah, but that really is the situation, that everyone really are sinners and that we don't have any room to say, I don't need Christ for salvation. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, right? Like that's how we've inherited our reading of Romans is that, you know, Paul's laying out the universality that all are condemned. And isn't there some truth in that, that like apart from the gift we are. We're, we're 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 all dead. We're all sinners. We're all you know. Apart from the mercy and love and grace of God, we do. We all stand condemned. And so we received that Romans reading it that way and saying, "Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who delivers us from our dreadful lot." But there's truth in that, right? Like there's truth in that. But it sounds like you're saying that all might be well and good, but that's not how this letter is actually, that's not really what Paul's doing. It, it, it's all, it gets very complicated to me, you know. I, Romans has always been, it's like, I, I'm looking for, the, if this is the heart of the gospel, then we should be able to understand, you know, we should be able to understand Romans, right? But why has the church not been able to have a clear, unified reading of the central letter of Paul? Does that make sense? I, I, oh, I understand. No, I, I'm totally empathetic, and I'm even empathetic for those who don't can't go with this understanding or this interpretation, because I think it is so radical. But I think, as you described it, what we tend to do is just move on to the heart of Paul's gospel. All have died in Adam. All are made alive in Christ. The love of God has been revealed in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth nor breadth. In other words, there we have the fullness of Paul's gospel. And maybe that message so overrides our misunderstanding of chapters 1 to 3 that the harm that this could have done has been mitigated. 
But unfortunately, I think we've mixed the two and that we do not we do not realize the fullness of the unconditional gospel as Paul is picturing it. But nonetheless, the love of Christ can break through. I have one more question if nobody else has it. I, I, I'm wondering if, does Campbell give us a clue to say like, well, here's how you know, or do you just have to be discerning? Unless you follow like Douglas Campbell's outline, like is there a way as a reader to identify like when it's Paul, when it's not Paul? It's on page uh, 587. 587, 588, 589. He, he puts the teacher in italics. Yeah, yeah. And then Paul, Paul's in standard text. Part of the interesting thing I found about this, that once you do what Campbell, once we say these are the false premises Paul is refuting, notice that it also reverses the standard reading, not just of 3.18 to 32, but the standard reading of 3.1 to 9. Previously, yeah. all of the arguments that Campbell is saying is the false teacher we have attributed to Paul, and all of the arguments that Campbell attributes to Paul, we have dismissed. True. Seems like a pretty big mistake on the part of the Christian tradition. <laughs> so I, I could go, I wrote them down here. You know, the tra traditional reading, two, four, and six, and actually uh, 10, are advocating justice and judgment by works. And the, our, our standard reading is, yeah, that's Paul right there. And then in three, 1, 3, 5, and 7, of, and 9 of chapter 3, we've usually said this is, you know, obviously we, it, it would be the interlocutor, not the false teacher. But we've, we've said that's not Paul. But in this reading, we're saying, oh, no, this is Paul. And that is that in 3, 1... He questions the advantage of the Jew. What advantage for a Jew? Well, in this understanding, we understand, oh, that's Paul. He's the one who's saying there's no advantage of the Jew. In uh, verse 3, 1, and then in verse 5, he argues the law is nullified by a lack of faith, unfaithfulness. Is that Paul or the, you know, who's saying that? That's Paul. In other words, it was faith prior to the law. Verse 7, he suggests a strict works righteousness system is unfair. Is, is that unfair if we've accepted 118 and, you know, that it can't be unfair? But the argument of Paul is your system is unfair. Works righteousness, judgment on the basis of works, is an unfair system. And then he questions that the Jew has any advantage. Who is that? Well, normally we would say, oh, Paul says the Jew has an advantage. Not in this system. Paul says, no, the Jew has no advantage. Campbell's point, he's probably quoting ironically the false teacher and saying the Jew first and then the, Gen the Greeks. But notice in that lineup, part of what the Jews get first is damnation. <laughs> you think that's a privilege? In other words, Paul is deconstructing the usual argument that we have. Oh, the Jews have an advantage. They have the law. Uh, that They're the chosen people. And so it's not just that we'll miss 318. We'll miss 
the intricacy of his argument in chapter 3, and of course the big danger is we'll miss his gospel entirely. I think it's something that I will, I know, and I think we can all play around with it and try it on. I mean, that's there's no rush, right, to, all right. <laughs> to be uh, all-knowing about this text. But it is instructive to be to be able to have the freedom to do that and to to have the guidance and suggestion from Douglas, for instance, and for it to job so well and have so much uh, overlap with basically what you've done with Romans seven, and that they do match up so well is it's just exciting to be reading the whole book again. And one of the things that I've tried to do is look at chapter one and see which words are clearly repeated in chapter two and i found fools who are without excuse that's how it starts chapter two foolish person you are without excuse so he's echoing the turning the word very words of the false teacher back on the one who passes judgment and then also in that list of uh, uh, behaviors is boast boasting they are boastful then he comes back and uses that in chapter two. Also, the, the theme carries it as a, yeah, as yeah. a theme. Those little those little things right there are the pointers. When you when you able to set the table for this frame that oh this this uh, one eighteen through thirty two is a is a prosopomian or whatever the, you know this is a character that he's clearly mimicking uh, in chapter one. And then he turns everything that he said back on the speaker. Yeah. Is uh, you know that's still I'm at the, the the macro level looking at it, but I know there's so much to to uncover, not just in the pages of, of uh, <laughs> Douglas's book and so many pages and words, but our own playing and trying it on. And I was, I was glad for the exercise you asked us to do, try to you know bring up our own playbill. <laughs> to see how, how it would be uh, acted out between the two voices. Oh. And this is with Origen. You know, Origen says, this is always what we have to do with the scriptures. He says, with every word, Origen says, examine every word, because he says that Christ is incarnate in the text, and that really to get to Christ, you do have to peel back, right? you got to keep digging. And he, he likens it to the treasure that's buried in the field, and he says that that's what the scripture is like. Is the scripture is like this field, and you got to dig for the treasure, uh, and that that's what the job of the Christian exegete is is to is to go uh, in search for treasure, and to do that, like you know, in the Old Testament, he says to examine every name. What does the name of that bush mean? What does the name of that river mean? What does the what's the translation of you know what I mean? He's like, why is it seven instead of six? Why is it? In other words, you got to pay attention to every detail because he says that Christ is to be found in the text in that sense um i'm wondering if uh you know it's been a few years since campbell's written this do you guys know if there's been any pushback in the scholarly in the new testament community has anybody says oh this is didn't he write or somebody or whoever say this is out of hand or or, or whatever how's it right, been received right uh writes a endorsement he praises it he, we have our breath taken away the scope the surprise of this historical the tour de force but he doesn't agree with it even those of us who remain unconvinced oh wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But has Wright shown why? Because you said that you're waiting for a better argument. So I'm wondering, has anybody come along and said, here's a better argument? I think the argument against Campbell is this. No one has ever said this. We have no history of this interpretive method. This is not the received understanding of the Book of Romans. This is not the received understanding of the gospel. There are alternative ways of interpreting this. We need not go to these extremes. And just the novelty of it speaks against it. In fact, I don't even need to read this book because it's too far. They say the and same thing about David Bentley Hart, so they must be wrong. <laughs> and that's what I'm getting, you know. Yeah. That I think a lot of people that are crit critiquing it, because it, it's such an argument. It's such a huge argument. That's what they said about Origin 2. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not reading all that stuff. I'm going to burn it. <laughs> Just burn it. Just get rid of it. We know it can't be right. So I, I think there are substantial outside arguments for it. But I think once you get into the details of Campbell's argument, that carries the day, at least it has for me, over and against the I understand the objections because I had them. I mean that's for me I don't care about the novelty any as much anymore. It's like you know, as long as it's in as long as it's sort of within the bounds, which it certainly seems like it is, you know, of of, of dogma, of the received dogma, which it definitely appears to be like I don't think that Campbell's saying anything that would go against like the against the gospel. It's just a different way of reading Romans. As a matter of fact, he may be bringing out different uh new and beautiful things you know from the gospel to make more clear you know uh the the glory of, of paul's gospel if the gospel is justification theory then da douglas campbell cannot be right and for and most people the gospel is justification theory. if i had a 28 career in a mainline denomination i would tiptoe around this too dangerous two more years i had two more years for pension yeah, yeah, you don't want, you wouldn't want to risk it. But isn't that always? That's the to me. That's it's on those edges. That's got to be where the you know Christ is. Is that he's outside the city? He's in that dangerous place where few venture, few would want to venture out to. You know. I like how he said uh, somehow he took a year just to uh, write this, and somewhere in his introduction he says one thing I learned is a year goes a lot faster than I thought it would. Yeah. No, it's a huge thing, and, and the thought that, you know, just the meticulous thought. I'll, this will be the last thing I say, I promise. And that is, I think the other thing we have to keep in mind, I think this is exciting and exciting reading, and we have to keep in mind the flat reading that we would otherwise have of these three chapters. Here's a guy who, you know, Paul says, you know, here, here's the gospel. Oh, and there's some hypocritical people who who break the law, and, and they we need these hypocrites need to repent. It's about that flat that he's critiquing a, a hypocritical person, not calling upon Christ, just saying they should be less hypocritical. We're all in the same boat. Uh, it's almost so flat and insipid. I wonder if Paul would bother to write it down. But on the other hand, this is gripping in the same way that the chapter 7 is gripping because he's, he's immediately taken hold 
and said, here's the human predicament. Here is an example of the problem in the flesh. And here is the way this thing is contradictory. Well, that was definitely worth the money. So. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. We appreciate you risking your pension, Paul, by bringing this to us. <laughs> okay. Literally. All right. <laughs> All right. Appreciate you guys. Good, Bye. Good, good to love us. Good night. Okay. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.